You can take your Bibles and find your way to Philippians chapter 1, the passage that we just had read aloud to us. This being the second Lord's Day of the new year, I want to just, I haven't had a chance to greet you yet and to wish you a blessed new year. I hope that you've already found reasons for um, being reminded of God's steadfast love to you in this new year. I don't know if you are a fan of the Olympic Games, whether winter or summer, but they are kind of neat seeing nations gather together and compete in those different um, events. I'm sure that most of you have heard of Michael Phelps, uh, one of those great Olympic swimmers. Um, A little story to help us kind of get into the mindset of what we have in front of us here in Philippians 1. But in 2016, when Michael Phelps entered the Rio Olympics, he already had 22 medals to his name. That included 18 gold medals. He retired after the 2012 or the 2012 London Olympics. In 2014, he couldn't stay away from the competition and he attempted a comeback. But on a late night drive home after a hard day of training, he was pulled over by the police and arrested for driving under the influence. This was his second DUI. When his parents received the phone call from the police, they were relieved that he was still alive. His life had spiraled out of control to such great degree. In the days that followed the arrest, Phelps locked himself in his room, eating and sleeping little, and as he evaluated his life, the conclusion he started to come to was that he should end his life. Ultimately, that is not what he chose to do. Through a series of influences, including a book, God's Word, and a rehab center, Michael Phelps discovered a purpose and meaning for life that had eluded him even though at that time he had achieved spectacular success and enjoyed worldwide fame. Question for us this morning as we look into Philippians 1. What gives your life meaning? Sadly, it seems many people would rather go through their daily events and activities without giving this kind of question real thought, and it's a big question to ask. In fact, I almost feel a little bad about asking a question of such depth on a Sunday morning. Is it too early on a weekend morning, on a Sunday morning, to ask that kind of question. Some of you are still waiting for that second cup of coffee to kick in. In Philippians 1, the Apostle Paul gives us an inside look at what gives life ultimate purpose and meaning. And if you're not a Christian, I realize that saying the Apostle Paul is a place for us to be instructed to find meaning and purpose in life might seem kind of silly to you if you're not a Christian. I mean, after all, the Apostle Paul is no Michael Phelps, right? I mean... Paul did not achieve numerous Olympic medals in front of millions of television viewers around the world. I wonder if our modern Western ears, even as Christians, are quick maybe to dismiss sometimes the Bible as a rich resource to examine our own purpose for living and to provide meaning in life because some of the claims in it seem silly in comparison to the mantras of meaning that are offered by our modern age. But that's one reason why a passage like this in Philippians 1 is so essential for us. It's so timely for us in this present moment. I'm certain there's no other place for us to go to, especially at the beginning of a year, to ask questions like this, questions this big. And if you're not a Christian, listen up. Because I think you might be surprised at how Christianity is uniquely able to offer the deepest and most nuanced and most compelling answers for these kind of deep questions that Everyone in the world is asking and looking for. So let me ask you again. What gives your life meaning? What gives your life purpose? 
My aim in this sermon is not to exhaust everything in this text. There are some secondary truths and applications that we are not going to be able to unpack because my aim this morning really is to unpack this one big idea that is presented to us in this text that I think will be useful. But my aim in this sermon is to help us all experience what Paul had, an unconquerable joy. And I want to link his unconquerable joy to his purpose and meaning in life because that's where they are found. That's how they are harnessed and unlocked. And so if you look at verse 18, you find that he has the theme of joy there. He's talking about joy in knowing that the gospel is preached. And then in the end of verse 18, he says, he says yes, I will rejoice. And remember, this is a man who is in prison, and he's not living in a comfortable prison. <laughs> There's joy there. Now look down at verse 26. This passage starts and ends with joy. It says, he says, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He has this anticipation of sharing joy, this unconquerable joy again with his readers. So how can an imprisoned man write with such powerful confidence and unconquerable joy as he faced the threat of Roman execution while sitting in Roman prison? Well, the answer to that question is found in our text. And I'd like for us just to begin to walk through this together, and then I think we'll see what God has for us here. In verse 19... Paul is finding reason to rejoice because he's certain that he will ultimately be delivered. You see that? For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, when our Western ears hear Paul exude confidence about being delivered, we likely think he's he's planning on being rescued or released from prison. But it's not that simple. Look at verse 20. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. So his sense of being delivered is linked to a confidence that he will not be ashamed. So not to be delivered means he would be ashamed. To be delivered means he will not be ashamed. Are we with me? I know some of these got to hang here with me, okay? This is, so that cannot mean that God's people will never face shameful circumstance or that they won't face the scorn from the ungodly in the world, because that happens all the time. It happens presently around the world. It's happened to some of you even maybe this week in your workplace or with your family. That happened to Jesus, who was shamed when he was stripped and hung on a cross. We keep reading in verse 20. It says, But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So he does not, at this moment, think that God is going to deliver him from prison in the sense of, Uh, He'll be released imminently, but what he does have in his mind is that not to be at all ashamed is linked with, do you see in verse the end of verse 20, Christ be honored in my body, whether he lives or dies. So to understand the grammar of what Paul is doing here, in other words, Paul, to not be ashamed means Christ will be honored, not that he's released. For Paul, if you flip it around, it means that he would be ashamed if Christ was not honored, whether he lived or died. Paul is certain he won't be ashamed because he's confident that whether he lives or dies, Christ will be honored. Now, in the last part of verse 20, he says, whether by life or by death, which means that what matters to Paul isn't whether he lives or dies. Now, I don't know where you land on the spectrum of whether you care whether you live or die, but I assume that some of us kind of scratch our heads at how he can be so ambivalent toward whether he lives or dies. He's sitting in prison. You'd think that death would be a constant threat in his mind. Constantly thinking about what's to come. Why isn't he a blubbering mess on the prison floor begging to be released, depressed and forlorn, 
that his life has no purpose, his career is over, his usefulness is finished? Well, the answer is found in verse 21, and this is a powerful verse. Do you see in verse 21? Here's the reason. For, because, for, me, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There it is. There's the knockout punch of this passage. For Paul, his definition of life is Christ. Now, I don't know if when we read those verses, if that makes sense to us. And so what I'm going to try to do is work this idea into our hearts. For Paul, what matters most is Christ being honored. The phrase to die as gain emphasizes that truth because he says, really, Paul does not consider death a threat. I mean, he's not living in fear of these centurions, these praetorian guard, or the order that might come to end his life because death is not a threat to him because death cannot ultimately destroy his loves or his joys. Instead, death is, in his mind, a pathway to be united with his greatest love and joys, Christ. So Paul said it this way to the Christians in Corinth. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The same sentiment coming from the heart of Paul. Look at verse 23 in our text here in Philippians 1. We learn more of his perspective on death. He says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Far better than what? Than to live. Now, Paul thought about death as something better than life because he defined life as Christ. And death was the pathway for him to be united with his greatest joy and love. Now, I feel like the more I talk about this, the more absurd I sound. By the way, this is not a suicidal wish. Okay? This is not an escape from hardship. This is an embracing of defining one's life in their relationship with Christ with such totality and comprehensiveness that he looks at life or death through and through the lens of Christ. Christ being honored. So here's what this teaches us. What this text teaches us is that if you have a proper definition of life, you'll be able to face anything in life, even death. But if you do not have a proper definition of life, you won't. Your life will collapse. So question again, how do you define life? What makes life to be life for you? When Paul says for me to live is Christ, he is saying that Jesus is the thing, is the one that makes life, life for him. Jesus Christ is his ultimate bottom line for making life, life. Paul's understanding of life's purpose and meaning flow from his relationship with Jesus as the most important fundamental bottom line, ground, um, worldview shaping force in his entire human existence. Again, the more I speak about this, the more absurd I feel like I sound. So in other words, for Paul, if he has Christ, if he knows Jesus, that means he has life, no matter what else happens to him or is taken from him. Are you stunned by that? I mean, just the sheer force of these words in framing up the Christian faith and how we should live and view the world around us and our decisions, it's breathtaking. It's convicting. 
In my study for the sermon, I came across a sampling of some common world views that are ways that people consider their purpose and meaning of life in our, in our world. Let me give us a quick summary of what I found, and maybe you'll even identify with some of these yourself. Many in our world live according to the worldview. For me to live is to have fun, to have pleasure. That would be our pop culture. Get a good job, work hard, make a lot of money, then use that to experience and buy a lot of fun and pleasure. Pleasure can be found and sought in a variety of experiences, recreations, purposes. None of those things are in and of themselves bad, but when that is your life purpose, another way to say it is for me to live is pleasure. But the challenge is if you take away pleasure, that means you have no life. And we all know that even the best pleasures of life eventually fade and diminish and don't please like they used to. Bill Gates, who has enjoyed enormous success and wealth in his life, said it this way on his blog just a few days ago, December 20th of 2022. And I quote, he says, With the pandemic, war in Ukraine, and the downturn in the economy, the past three years have been some of the hardest in recent memory. Everyone in the world has experienced loss during this time of loved ones, financial security, or a way of life. Because of my position, I am insulated from many of these hardships but I too have hit some personal low points over the past few years, including the death of my father and the end of my marriage. As I reflect on the past and look ahead to the next year, I'm feeling grateful for the people in my life who support me in difficult moments. They remind me of what's important and they inspire me to be a better father and friend. Now hear this, words of Bill Gates. Being wealthy makes my life much more comfortable, but not more fulfilling. The book of Ecclesiastes agrees. In that book, you'll read about the sheer impossibility of finding fulfillment and purpose in life through the pursuit of pleasure. Another common worldview, especially for the religious, is this one. For me to live is to be moral or to be good. You keep the rules, you obey, you do good, and then you feel good and you expect God to treat you well. The problem is no one can keep the rules perfectly. And God is not a slot machine to be played like a casino. And let alone, how do we know what rules we're going to live by? Where is that standard of rules that we're, going to, that we're going to abide by? And so when this happens, your purpose and meaning in life collapses and you either try to do more rule-keeping or you just abandon it altogether into just, just immoral licentiousness. Or a third common way of people trying to find meaning and purpose in life is in relationships. And this is, by the way, this one is commonplace in Christian circles too. It's a more noble purpose of life than career or money or finances. And so we say, well, we'll find our purpose and meaning in life through family and friends, a spouse or children. They will be our life. But here's the challenge. If you say, for me to live is to have him or her or them, when the common tragedies of life occur and take them from you, your life will utterly collapse. Think about it this way. If you live for your spouse or if you live for your children, what happens when they die? So this text teaches us that we must convert our purpose in meaning in life to something greater, something better, something that can endure the worst, even death, and still not be taken from you. So what is that? Well, Paul told us, according to Paul, there's only one definition of life that will stand up to anything and everything this world can throw at us, and it's Jesus Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now think about this. Paul's in prison. His comfort is gone. 
He doesn't have a comfy bed or silk sheets or a hot shower or gourmet meals or scenic views. And yet he basically says here, so what? Again, the more I speak about this, the more absurd I feel like I sound. He says, so what? I may live, I may die, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because this hasn't touched my life. Consider his career. It's over, right? I mean, he can't travel, he can't plant churches anymore. That's what he was doing. I mean, that was his life's purpose in planting churches, expanding the fame of Jesus through spreading the gospel to new regions. He can't do that anymore and engage with people with the gospel like we read about in Acts. Essentially, Paul says, that's okay. His career is not his life. Christ is. He can say, so what? I may live. I may die. It doesn't matter. It hasn't touched my life. So, are you willing to give your own worldview some personal examination this morning? How do you define life? If your career is collapsing or your health or your comfort or your finances or your convenience, etc., fill in the blank. And if the result of that is the collapse of your life, the problem is not the circumstance of your life. I'm not saying hard things aren't hard things. I'm not saying Paul wasn't in hardship and enduring hardship and it was difficult, yes. But if those things collapse and your life collapses, the problem is not the circumstance. The problem is with the definition of your life. That's the problem. Parents of children, we can be very susceptible to having the wrong definition of life. It's so easy to make a child the definition of life. This happens when you elevate their comfort, their happiness, their desires over obedience to Jesus. And this is very countercultural. Parents, your children... They need to see in us and in our parenting that to live is Christ. Our kids need to understand as soon as possible that we sacrifice, we deny ourselves, we die to our desires, even good desires. We endure hardship and inconvenience for Christ because to live is Christ. Our children need to be dispossessed of the notion that to live is school or to live is sports or to live as friendships, or to live as vacations, or possessions, or comfort. And the same goes for us, too. Not just our children, but for all of us, in all of those matters. So a question for parents, grandparents. Are your children, grandchildren, learning from you that to live is Christ? Are we beginning to see how powerful and essential this way of thinking is for us? How it clears the decks of all the confusion, of all the the clutter that gets in the way and it helps us reorient on, you know, these things are hard and difficult and suffering is an interruption in life. It's actually part of normal life in this sin-cursed world. It's a reminder that we are built for a, a world where Jesus will make all things new and yet we can say, it's okay. Whether I live, whether I die, to live is Christ. I know it's radical and it's uncomfortable for us to contemplate. Paul has an unconquerable joy in life because the bottom line, love and meaning of his life cannot be taken away. And he proves that when he writes in verses 23 through 24. Look at those verses with me. He says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. These are interesting verses. It's in these verses that Paul begins to think out loud as he considers the prospect of life and death. To be expected from a guy sitting in a Roman prison, right? It's as if he's imagining he has a choice to make between living or dying. And I assume that he wondered many times about that. But in verse 22, Paul considers life fundamentally this way. Do you see it? As an opportunity to give himself in fruitful labor for Christ. According to the context of Philippians 1, that means this. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. It means to advance the gospel. And that's the, that's the consistent message through this first chapter is that Paul wants the gospel to advance. He hears people preaching the gospel out of good intent. Great, the gospel advanced. He hears people preaching the gospel out of ill intent. He says, that's okay. The gospel's being advanced. He says, whether I live or die, that's okay. Christ will be honored. And so what consumes him for Paul He considers life fundamentally as an opportunity to give himself in fruitful labor for Christ. And then he comes to the conclusion in verse 25. It's that he thinks he can come to this conclusion in his own worldview that it's going to be necessary for him to continue to live so that he can, you see it, continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I love that phrase. To continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul equates spiritual progress in faith with an increased joy in faith. And remember, this guy is writing this in prison. And he's talking about, I want to keep living, whether I get out or not, because I want to continue to pursue your progress and joy in faith. Progress and joy in faith happen simultaneously. Which means that as our faith grows, God intends our joy to be growing, not the other way around. Right? So we shouldn't be a group of Christians that are just gloomy and grumpy. Paul, Paul wants his readers to, hey, as your joy, as your progress in faith increases, so will your joy in faith. And this is the guy writing in prison. How? To live as Christ. That's how. Is that how you think about life? Do you consider life as an opportunity to help others in their progress and joy in the faith? What if we approached every Sunday like that? You came on Sunday and you thought, man, church membership is an opportunity for me to help others for their progress and joy in faith. That's what I get to do today. I get to help them in their progress and joy in faith. I get to serve kids to help them in their progress and joy and faith. I get to help moms and dads listen to the, to the preaching of God's word with less distraction by serving a nursery for their progress and joy and faith. I get to show up early to help with hospitality or greeting. I get to, to learn how to run the sound booth. I get to stick my neck out and sing on music team and maybe look like an idiot from time to time when I make mistakes, but it's for their progress and joy and faith. How do we get released and liberated in that kind of selfless abandonment? To live as Christ. Only there. Now, look at it. I mean, what Paul's doing here in these verses is he's modeling what he's going to exhort them to do in a few more verses later. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. We're not there yet in our series, but we'll get there. He says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, how dare he say that? Well, he's authorized to say that because he's modeled it for them right here in chapter 1. I mean, in Paul's own words, his interest would be this. Jesus, take me. Let me be with you. Let my life be done. 
let me be with you that is far better. But what Paul does is he embraces that, hey, the interests of others, and he accepts the reality in verse 24 that he believes God will have him continue to live so he can work for their progress and joy and faith, but you'll only be able to put the interests of others first when you define life like Paul does, to live as Christ. Paul isn't alone in this, by the way. In this book alone, in Philippians, we have other examples where uh, the, the characters in this, in this story, in Philippians, are doing this very same thing. Jesus does it. Look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. He puts the interests of others first. Or look down in chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Timothy did it. Paul describes Timothy this way, For I have no one like Timothy, like him, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, right? The interests of others. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And Timothy is unique in that he's not seeking his own interests. He's seeking the interests of Christ. Or another example that Paul gives to the Philippians is in chapter 2, verse 30, with Epaphroditus. That's a, that's a name, right? Mom, new, new, new moms and dads, there's a name for you to consider. Epaphroditus, it says this way. Paul says, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Again, putting the interests of others first. Here's a question. Will you? Will you put the interests of others first so that your life is, you view it as an opportunity to help others in their progress of joy and faith? You can and you must, but you will only have that happen. None of us will have that happen unless we embrace this idea to live as Christ, to die as gain. Now, I know this one main idea is comprehensive. It's kind of like rearranging the furniture in all of our lives in some way. All of us live with the pressures of this world pushing in and trying to make things for us to be life other than Christ. And they're not evil things either. Financial uh, pursuit is not, is not wrong in and of itself in the sense of stewarding and caring well for your family. That, that is not evil. Raising your children up in, in Christian homes where they know their, your love and your care and your sacrifice to them is not evil. I'm not telling you to be bad parents. It's not an either-or. But I do wonder how much Philippians 1, 21 needs to reshape and recalibrate our thinking about a lot of things in life. Are you reluctant to die to self? Because for you, life is not Christ. Life is praise or adoration or fame or comfort or acknowledgement or fulfillment and doing what you want, the interests of yourself. I don't know how God is using this passage in your life, but I would ask that you give it careful thought. This has been convicting for me as I've prepared to preach. As God examines specific issues in my own life that can easily start to replace to live as Christ where it's not. Is God convicting your worldview? Is he showing you the emptiness of how you order your life? By the way, the emptiness that he allows you to feel as you pursue those false Christs, that is his mercy. The worst thing in the world is for God to let your soul be satisfied in something less than himself because that is not God. He alone is. You have been designed by a wonderful creator to be satisfied uniquely in him and him alone. And so as you feel the disappointment and the frustration and the despair of pursuing these other false Christs to make your life, to define your life, that is a mercy from God. And he wants you to know and enjoy him. 
So what changed, perhaps, church member? Is God's Spirit calling you to confess and embrace so you can echo the words of Paul this week in a new area for me to live as Christ? In what ways do your children need to see you model for me to live as Christ? Or your co-workers for me to live as Christ? Or fellow church members to be encouraged in their own walk of faith, progress of joy and faith, to see you by God's strength through His Spirit, right? The answer of the prayers in verse 19. That's a whole other sermon there alone about the connection between their prayers and the Spirit of God supplying what Paul needs for his defense of the gospel in Roman prison. But for church members to see you to live as Christ. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're interested in discovering this kind of powerful purpose and meaning in life. Maybe your heart is saying, yeah, I've been looking everywhere. I've been looking for relationships or success or career or accomplishments or events or activities or vacations and it always leaves my heart lacking and longing for more. Well, friend, you're in the right place and you've heard the right truth from God's Word. Would you like to say for me to live as Christ? If you would like to say that and you, and you aren't because you're not a Christian, the answer for you is embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Embrace Him as the definition of life. That's the central message of what Christianity is. Jesus saves. He saves rebels like you and me who have rebelled against his rule and reign in your life to make our lives about something other than God. And what Jesus accomplished in salvation is he took the condemnation that we deserve and he satisfied God's wrath for that rebellious act, those rebellious acts against him, that mindset against him. And he did that through his death on the cross. And this means if you'll turn from that rebellious orientation of life, of pursuing these false Christs, and instead embrace him as Lord and Savior, the scriptures teach that God will completely and entirely forgive you for your sin, for your treasonous acts against a loving, gracious God who made you and loves you. Then and only then can you join in Paul's anthem and say this, for me to live as Christ. Friends, what we need in life is not five steps to successful living. What we need is what Paul gave us here. For me to live as Christ. If you say, well, what's one call to action? I would ask this. Pray that this God would work this truth out in you and in us as a church family. Imagine the influence and impact God might be pleased to accomplish in our cities and communities where we live, work, and play if we more and more as a church family embrace this truth for me to live as Christ. Imagine the conversations that you might have that you aren't having because for you to live is not Christ right there yet. But it's okay. God has mercy and he's changing us. He's growing us up. He's progressing us in faith and joy. Just imagine that. And as you imagine that, would you pray for that? Because, friends, none of us can reverse engineer this. You can't just go out and try to work this. We really need for God to have mercy upon our hearts and our heads and to warm us to these truths that we might embrace them by faith and live them out day by day.